Hey, good morning, Journey. How's everybody doing today? Good? Man, I am excited that you're here with us uh, at the Journey Church. Um, so um, I, I am, uh, those that are watching online and those that are here with us this morning, um, we started uh, last week going through a Renew the Vision uh, series in the book of Haggai. And so we're going we're gonna to take seat week two to look at this really small uh, prophet, uh, a minor prophet in the Old Testament this morning. Before we do that, I just want to welcome our visitors. I want to encourage you, if you're here for the first time or, or maybe the first time in a long time, uh, if you would do us a favor in the back seat uh, of your chair, there's just a connect card. If you would fill that out for us, and you can leave that in the basket at the welcome table back here in the alcove or at the front table on your way out the door. We just want to send you some information about the journey and our ministry and what we do here. And uh, so we think it's so very important that we connect because we weren't meant to live this life alone. We were meant to live together in community. And so we look forward to doing that hopefully with you if this is where God would choose you to plant yourself this morning. And so I invite you to do that. If you're watching online, you can go uh, to our website at thejourneyclean.com. There's just a connect right there in the middle. I encourage you uh, to click on that and to connect with us here at The Journey. Um, so with all that said, uh, I want to invite you to open to the book of Haggai. Trust me, if you don't know where it is, don't feel bashful about using your index. That's cool, okay? Uh, because it is a small book, uh, all of two pages, okay? Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the back table. I invite you to Grab one of those, use that, or take that with you. That's our gift to you this morning. We want you to be in the Word, and so we'd love for you to have a Bible from us. Well, from God, to you, from us. Okay, I have to rephrase that, right? Uh, I didn't write the Bible, just, just trust me, okay? Um, so in Haggai, we started last week um, talking about how the dispersion of Israel uh, was overthrown by King Nebuchadnezzar. He came into Jerusalem, sacked the city, took all of the Israelites to Babylon into captivity. You read a lot through Daniel and other texts about those times uh, of their being uh, in captivity. And so now they're coming back to Jerusalem. And, and if you're with us last week, we talked about how they came back to just a decimated city. So they came back to the temple. And by the way, the temple in Jewish life, it was the center, the seat of everything. And so for, for, for the Jewish nation in Israel, that was the center of their worship. That was the house that God indwelled. And so they came and they sat and they just kind of hung out there. And finally, God raises up this prophet Haggai to come in and say, wait a minute, what are you doing? What are you doing for the kingdom of God? Why are you not rebuilding? Why are you sitting here? And so in some ways, they made all kinds of excuses. And we talked, to the, we talked about that last week. All the excuses we make for not serving God, for not being faithful, for not doing all these things, we are full of all kinds of excuses. And pretty much at the end of the day, they ended up coming back, fearing God, realizing that they had a job to do, and said they became obedient. You'll notice in, in chapter 1, um, uh, down in verse 12 and 13, it says, And when the voice of the Lord had come, the words of Haggai the prophet, it says, And the people feared the Lord. And they obeyed the voice of the Lord. Okay, so now they've come back, okay? They start building, right? And things seem to be going pretty well. Guess what? It didn't last long, okay? So second time, God raises that guy up and says, go preach to them again. They didn't get the first message. And this is where we come to in chapter 2 this morning. I invite you to read along with me. In the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, 
the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shentiel, governor of Judah, and, and to Joshua, and to the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw the house in all of its glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now... Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord of hosts. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Zehozadak. The high priest, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. And then he says again, second time, fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill the house with the glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts, the reading of God's word. So a couple of questions he brings up here at the very beginning. The first one is, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Okay, so who is left? So what's he talking about? He's talking about King Solomon's temple, right? You remember reading about that in scripture? It was overlaid in gold. I mean, man, it was, it was really awesome. I can't even imagine the immenseness of his temple because he was, as we know, the wealthiest man who ever lived, okay? And so, so he said, how many of you are left that remember that? Well, there were probably a few, but not many, okay? So they were sitting down amongst all of this, and they were just like kind of reveling in the past. And then Haggai is addressing those who have survived Babylon's invasion, the remnant Okay, now you got to understand, this was not an easy occupation. When they came in and they took the temple and they took them and drug them off, many of them were teenagers, right? Got any teenagers in here? Okay, so 12, 13, 14 years old, right? I know some of us wish we were teenagers, but we're not, right? Okay, uh, but anyway, he drug them off uh, to captivity. So they were young. Even if they remember King Solomon's temple, this had been many years that passed. And so he, they're now grumbling, uh, just, man, this, this isn't as great as it used to be. This temple isn't as beautiful as it used to be. And so they just began to grumble by saying, this house is not the same as the former. So what made it the house of the Lord? Okay, what makes the house the house of the Lord? God, God does. I don't, okay? I don't make the house holy. God does. And so then the second question, he says, how does it look to you now? He's like, what do you see? What do you see when you see the church? What do you see when you see all of this? And so Haggai exposes a disparaging thought that the comments that they were making about the temple. And then the third question, it is not as nothing, is it not as nothing in your eyes? And so basically he's saying, does the temple of God mean anything to you? Does this seem as nothing? Does this seem completely insignificant? See, this answers the second question. To the old who were looking back to the former glory, that was everything. But to the young, they were kind of feeding off those who were older who had been there. See, Haggai gave his halftime speech. 
Anybody ever, I don't know if you've ever coached, um, I, I used to coach some upper basketball, I've coached a few things, and you know, if we were, if we were behind, right, you always give a halftime speech. Well, what does the coach do when he gives a halftime speech? Does he come in and say, well, boys, or, or if it's girls, girls, this game's lost. You might as well just lay down. You might as well go home, forget about it. This is a lost cause. You might as well, I mean, it doesn't matter how far the, the, the opposing team is up, what are you going to do? Man, you want to pump them up. You're like, hey, we can do this, right? And I'm speaking, I, I'm a Cowboy fan. That's a horrible thing to be these days, right? I had to, I had to pump myself up every half time. I'm like, I think they can win. No, they can't. Yes, they can, right? So I'm going back and forth. Because in my heart, I don't think they can. And in fact, they didn't a lot of times. But this is, this is different because God is on their side. In fact, Haggai, look what he does. When he comes down, he goes through all this. He says, he says the Lord is with you. And then he says, be strong, all you people, declares the Lord. Where do you get your strength from? Where does all of this come from? So what in the world is God doing with this church? And I want to ask you a question this morning. Some of you are new to the journey, but those that have been here, and, and just think about the churches you've been in the past. What is God doing at the journey? What is he doing here? Why are we here? Why do, why do we get together every week? See, God is seeing what we really want from him. Right? What do we really want from God? I believe that God is drawing us into the center of his purpose for a final thrust towards the finish line. And I believe it's happening in this generation. I believe it's happening right now. I mean, if you open your eyes and look all around you, okay, and I'm not talking just about the political upheaval and all the things and all the struggles that we have faced in the last year, but I believe that has a part to do with it. See, the cultural note in this whole thing is I believe that he is going to open our eyes. He's going to open your eyes to see something awesome, something amazing. Those that truly believe and follow him. And look what he says then. He says, the Lord is going to shake the heavens and shake the earth in a little while. Okay? I will shake the heavens and shake the earth and shake the sea and shake the dry land. So this is a big idea for us this morning. Do you see disarray or God's design when you look at the church? Do you see the church running for cover? You see it in disarray. You see like they did, sitting in the ashes, just kind of, kind of say, man, I wish things were like it was back in the good old days. I wish it was when I was at this church, right? See, we have, uh, in, in PCS season, it's really interesting. I get texts and messages uh, from people who go to another duty station, another place, and they're still streaming our services every Sunday morning, right? And so the first thing I ask them is, have you found a place to serve? Have you found a church yet? And they're like, oh, Pastor Mark, we just like you. We like our former church. We just stream you every week. I'm like, stop it. <laughs> That's not why I put that out there, right? You should be going, getting involved, plugging into a church. It wasn't meant for that. See, why could some endure years of incredible stress and hardship and all of this? So Frankel um, concluded in his words after the Holocaust. He says, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. In other words, there's power and strength in seeing a significant purpose through hardship. And we've talked about that quite a bit as we went through First Peter, right? So the why that fuels our worship. What is the why that fuels our worship? See, if you know why God is doing what he's doing, then the, then the how really doesn't matter. I mean, you know he's going to do it. 
But I think we do have to ask, why is God doing what he's doing? We must always keep God's design up front, right? God's design for the church has never changed. He's the same today, tomorrow, and throughout all eternity. So all the things you're facing, experiencing in human disarray right now is part of God's sovereign plan, right? We don't see it that way. We don't like it, right? And so I want us to go through this morning several aspects of our worship, because I think this is at the heart of what Haggai is talking about. Is your worship in disarray, or do you see the amazing things that God is doing? Number one, worship that can stand the test of time will be fueled by God's faithfulness, right? Do you believe God is faithful? Do you believe that? I don't don't know. I wonder sometimes if we do. (laughs) You know, we say it. I mean, that's a a good tagline for church. I mean, we we say it all the time because it's in the Bible. God is faithful. But do we really believe that? I believe, like we talked about last week, our actions back up what we say we believe. If we believe God is faithful, why are we so unfaithful if we truly believe that? And so notice what Haggai says in verses 4 through 5. He says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Zehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you coming out of Egypt. So now he's going back to Egypt. He's going, did I ever leave you? Did I ever leave you? Did I ever ever not follow through on a promise I said I was going to do? You remember coming out of Egypt, um, they had a pillar by day of smoke, right? And a pillar of fire by night. Literally, the presence of God was with them. So rock climbers, any rock climbers out there? I'm not. I repel down them, but I don't go up them, okay? Uh, it's bad. My body doesn't bend that way. I've tried, but it's horrible. And so rock climbers are very meticulous about their climb. Why? Because it's a life and death thing, right? And so, so rock climbers spend meticulous time planning their ascent more than they do actually climbing. Well, why? Because they need to know exactly which face they're going to go up. They need to know how the crevices uh, move around. And so they meticulously then plot their route, and they print these things called patons. Okay, these patons, okay, are their protection. They're these little stakes. They, they drive into the rocks. They hammer them into the small crevices of the rock face. And then they attach ropes. And you better, you better hope your baton is in the right place, right? Because if you're not and you fall, you're counting on that catching your weight. Well, think of it this way. Our batons, our protection, okay, is, is what we've experienced through God's grace. Our protection is what we experience through God's faithfulness. Think of all those times when we talked last week. Have you ever thought about how many times God has protected you from even worse things? Okay, I I look at my life and I think of all these times I could have fallen off the cliff. I could have gone that way. And God put something there to catch me, right? Even in my most rebellious state. See, the mistakes many people make is we begin to externalize our religion. begin externalizing religion. And so we just see the external, right? We see the, I mean, you know, most people, it's funny when, when I tell them where our church is, that they've never seen it before, even though they drive up and down Bunny Trail all the time. I said, it's a nondescript tan building. Come on in. And they, and they come in. Usually people kind of, I always tell them, if you've ever watched Dr. Who, it's like the TARDIS. It's bigger on the inside. Trust me. Come on in. Okay, it looks bigger on the inside. Okay, it looks like just a nondescript conics box setting out here on Bunny Trail. Okay, don't be afraid. It's okay. But But see, the thing is, sometimes we're drawn to the external. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with first taking care of your church, having having a church that honors God. I I think 
we can, I mean, we don't, we don't have to, to sit in the ashes, but I think sometimes we want to highlight the external. The second thing is glorifying the past. We talked about that earlier. The second mistake that people make uh, was idealizing or glorifying the past, but, but that was a wrong attitude. At this point, they should have been praising God for getting them out of the exile. So, man, I am so thankful we are not in exile. We are here in, in the city that you gave us. So if we are perfectly honest, we can sometimes be guilty of the same thing. We look back at things that God did in the past. And we say, why is he not doing that today? Think about the 18th century, the Great Awakening. I don't know if you've studied anything of church history, but there was this great movement uh, where you had pe- preachers like Sankey and, and you have a Wesley and, 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 and Calvin. You had all these evangelists and Charles Spurgeon, and, and they were going throughout the country. They were evangelizing. Literally, literally hundreds upon thousands of people were flocking to these tent revivals. See, there's nothing wrong to long for God to move today like he did then. But you know what I think our problem is? We don't believe he will. We don't believe he will. We don't have enough faith to believe he will. See, see, faithfulness comes, uh, our unfaithfulness, okay, many times, is not believing God is going to do what he said he would do. The, false, the, the third thing is false comparison. Um, and this is a mistake that I believe is more deadly than anything else. I believe it will kill churches and it will kill ministries. We cannot compare ourselves to uh, other ministries or other churches or other things. Well, what were they doing? They were comparing what they had done in the past with King Solomon's temple, with what, what, what those people did. See, Solomon's age was one of economic prosperity. They had a lot of things that, that the, the, the church during that day didn't have. They had all those things. And, and so they go through this whole kind of woe is me thing. For example, we may look at another church where congregations are maybe larger, okay? And, and there's, you know, we see that and, and many times, and I have friends in, in church plants, in really large churches in Austin and other places, and we get together and hang out. We talked about this last week. One of the first questions usually somebody's going to ask is, How's your attendance? How are people coming to church? And I'm like, why should that matter? Why don't we say, are you preaching the gospel? How many people did you disciple this week? How many people are growing in their faith daily? Okay, and so the reality is in the church of God, and this is what he says at the end, okay, he says that the latter glory is going to fail and it's going to be so much different than the former. So he says the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. And so what he's talking about is the future kingdom of God, right? Do you ever think about what the kingdom of God is going to be like when we get to heaven, what that kingdom is going to be like? So this is where we live. Let me, let me give you some encouragement this morning. We live in the but now, literally, and now reality, okay? So God is here. When Jesus Christ came in flesh, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for your sins, he came Okay, here as fully God, fully man, okay, you'd be surprised how many people don't believe he was fully God. They, they love the humanity, they love the man part, but when you start talking about his deity, that he was fully God, okay, in fact, you'd be like I, I used to lead youth ministry, and every time we come to the subject of, do you believe that God, that, that God is perfect? Do you believe Jesus Christ is perfect? Well, no, I don't. I'm like, what? You don't believe that? I mean, that's foundational to the Christian faith. How can you not believe that? Well, because in their mind, okay, that's, that's, that's an impossibility, that somebody can be that infinitely perfect. 
But he is in all of his ways. The Bible says there's no shadow of turning or changing with God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So notice he says, declares the Lord. It occurs three times throughout this text. Literally, the, the word for Lord is Yahweh, okay? That is God, okay? Declares God. So everyone is to be strong and to what? Work. Literally, the word work means to do something. What are we doing? You ever, man, my family uh, and my wife and I usually will sit down on, on Sundays and we'll talk about our week next week, right? And she's like, okay, what do we got to get done? What's on our calendar this week, right? And, and if you're like me, we better sync up our calendars. We're going to miss something somewhere, right? Because everybody's just so busy, too busy, I think. And so we start to list all these things we got to do. But I would ask you a question. What are you doing for God's kingdom? How does that fit into your paradigm? See, there's a twofold promise and command by God. The first thing, that God's covenant people, he will protect. So, the covenant people, what does that mean? We talked about that last week. The covenant people of God, the original covenant was with who? Israel, right? The Jews, that was his original covenant. So now through Jesus Christ, through the Lamb of God, we now fall under that covenant. So we are a part of God's covenant people. So anytime you read in scripture about God's covenant people, I want you to look at yourself. If you're a believer, you live in that twofold promise. And despite all the occasions of disobedience, the Lord was still their God. He was still faithful. I want you to think about this. The promises of protection are on you. God is faithful and constant even when we are not. God is faithful and constant even when you are not. The world does not spin and turn around you, okay, whether you're faithful or not. And I think that's the thing that's hard to understand because sometimes we think, man, God, we did you a favor this morning. We came and worshiped you. You should thank me. <laughs> you know, I, I gave up time today to come be with you. See, the world doesn't revolve around you. See, the faithfulness of God and his attributes display a trustworthiness. Do we truly trust him? What we notice from, from the very beginning of time, right? So go all the way back to the relationship God had with his people in the garden. He, he's a relational God. You know what separates Christianity from every other world religion? A relationship. Every other world religion, you can't, you can't have a relationship with God. I mean, in Islam's religion, you can't literally have a relationship with God. You know, we lived in Okinawa, Japan uh, for three years, and... Um, when I was in the Marine Corps, and, and as we were there, some of, some, to me, the most, most depressing part of being in that culture was they didn't have a relationship with their God. In fact, in the Shinto religion, they, they would have a season of, of Oban, and if you know anything about that, it's a season for the dead. And they would literally come out with candles, and they would, they would walk around, and they would, they would pray for their ancestors that had gone on. So they were wor doing ancestor worship. They were worshiping them but they, because they longed to have a relationship. I believe everybody in this world longs to have a relationship, but they don't know what they're longing for, right? See, Abraham's lineage is littered with, with a long line of lying, thieving, adulterous murderers because God has proven faithful even when his people are not. And he is always faithful. Look what it says in number 6, 
24 through 26, it said, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift you up and his countenance is upon you. And he gives you peace because he keeps you. He keeps his covenant people. The second thing is the continued presence of the Spirit. Though notice he says, The Lord is with you. Now, what do you do if you don't, and people all the time, man, I just don't feel God. I don't feel his presence. I don't feel like he's with me. That's not what this means, that the presence of God is with you. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. I think sometimes we, we play this on emotion. But literally, the second half reinforces the first because the word remains denotes a continuous action. It's like you get up this morning, you breathe air, you have life inside of your bones. That is an act of God. You have a divine action or presence followed by a human responsibility. So because you know God, because he lives in you, now you have a responsibility. And this is why Haggai's telling the people of Israel. He's saying, you have a responsibility. Many years have passed since Exodus. So here's the cultural connection for us. What thing do you continually need to go back to to draw strength? What well do we go through on a constant basis to draw strength in daily life? I think many times we go to what? We go to our job, we go to our spouse, we go to our family, we go to our finances, right? And if all those things aren't in a row, we don't feel complete. We feel like something's missing, right? But the reality is, in life, the missing thing is God. The missing thing is His Holy Spirit. People get saved and totally forget about the Spirit living inside of them. So what do they do? They walk around all day moaning, saying, man, I, I wish... The world was like this. I wish people would just get it. I wish they would act this way. I wish people would do this. I wish if my job would just better, if I just had more finances, more money in the bank, if I just had, had a better relationship with my spouse, if I just had a better relationship with my children, if I just had all of these things and we just did to death, then I would truly be happy. And the reality is it doesn't matter how much you have, you will never be happy. Did you know some of the wealthiest people in the world are some of the saddest and loneliest people in the world? Why? Because they have all of this stuff, right? And they have nobody to share it with because they don't have a relationship with God. See, the command is, he said, do not fear. This could have the force of halting action. He says, don't fear. Number two, worship that can stand the test of time will be fueled by God's power. It is God's power. It's, it's design is to encourage the people to look not only at the present, but look at the future. Let me, let me read you what A.W. Tozer says. He says, anything God has ever done, he can do now. Think about that. Anything he did in the past, he can do now. Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. And anything God has ever done for anyone, he can do it for you, right? We just don't believe it, right? We call ourselves believers, but if we truly believe something, right? Then we trust it to be faithful. We trust it to be true. Haggai says in, in, in chapter 2, verse 6, says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Anybody ever been in an earthquake before? I hope not. Man, that, those are the worst things. I, I've been through hurricanes. Uh, I've seen tornadoes. I would much rather experience those than an earthquake. Um, when I was getting out of the Marine Corps, it was around 1992, 93. Uh, we were in uh, Twin Nine Palms, California. Am I wrong? 92? Okay, 92. My wife always gets it right. Um, I'm bad with dates. Anyway, but around there, 
they had a, one of the largest magnitude earthquakes they had had in a long time, and it ran right down that valley uh, that we were in, that we lived in. I remember waking up, our daughter was, was a newborn, and, and the walls literally were shaking and bending in towards the bed. And I remember taking Hannah, scooping her out of her crib, putting her in the bed, wrapping my arms around them, just thinking, Lord, this is it. We're done, right? And so we, we thought it had stopped, and we actually got in worship the next Sunday morning, and we're on the worship team. We're up on stage leading worship, and all of a sudden, we had aftershocks, and the whole building started shaking. Let me talk about come to Jesus moment. People are like, we love you, Lord. Yes, it's done, right? I mean, I mean, so when I think about literally the foundations of the earth shaking, now is this figurative or literal? Yes and yes, okay? It's both and, okay? I think there, there's some figurative language here, but there have been times literally the threshold shook with the power of God. Some say that the first shaking occurred at Mount Sinai, right? When the Ten Commandments, when the, when the Lord came and gave those in the mountains. Some say the second shaking mentioned in this verse in the New Testament preaching of the gospel when it shook the Roman world. And you have the you know, Paul and Silas in prison and, and, and the walls shook and it busted prison doors open. But it's more likely it's looking at, a des, at the design of the pro, that the prophet is talking about, which is to encourage builders and to, to, to continue acting faithfully for God. It's more likely that these shakings, plural, more than one, points to even social disturbances, even political upheavals in our world today. Okay, I believe there are political upheavals today. So there are sometimes figurative descriptions that convulse among heathen kingdoms. It's really funny. My son walks through. This was right after the election. He walks through the kitchen. You got to know my son. He's so black and white. And, and he walks through the kitchen and he's like, <clears throat> We didn't make it as long as Rome did. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it's going, America didn't even last as long as Rome. You know, I'm going, thanks, Troy. That's a bright, shiny thing this morning to say, right? But all kingdoms fall. All kingdoms crumble. All kingdoms topple before their maker. In fact, look what Isaiah says. Isaiah 13, 30 says, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will shake out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the day of his fierce anger. Joel 2.10, The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Joel 3.16, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge for his people. I want you to get this. And he is a stronghold for the people of Israel. God had shaken the Egyptian empire, and it fell. A horse and rider were thrown into the sea, right? God, God crumbled the Babylonian empire, and they, they crumbled. And then the Syrian empire, God came in, and he, he, he crumbled that empire. God now says he is going to shake once more. And this is talking about our future the future kingdom that's coming. All of these shakings are upheavals of what God has already planned, right? So when you think about your government, when you think about kings, when you think about leaders, when you think about emperors, when you think about all of this, I want you to look how this is in God plan, God's plan because I believe, and I believe Scripture teaches that God uses the events and the rise and fall of nations to fulfill His purposes in the world. Okay, think about that. God uses, okay, the rising and falling of empires and governments to, to fulfill his purpose. So, so it's a blend of the divine and the human okay, activity. 
Romans 13.1, we used this uh, several months back. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And I want you to get this, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now think about that. There is no authority under heaven and earth that God has not had a part in putting in place. God has always, always been about that. And I think sometimes we miss that, right? We, we, think, we think God has no idea what's going on in our world today. He does. See, the sense of, of God at work in the number of instructive verbs in these, he says, I will shake, I will fill, I will grant, I will do all these things. So God, I believe, is shaking the church. He's shaking us to see what we really want. Do you really desire to be faithful? Because he is faithful, Right? Do we really desire to be faithful? Several years ago, uh, I undertook the challenge of competing in a Spartan beast race. I don't know what I was thinking. I got goaded into it by these army guys that forget my age, right? And, and so I'm like, ah, I can do this. So I, I should have known because I did the first one, the little three and a half, four miler. It about killed me, right? You had to crawl through this tube that had no air in it. I'm like, who does that? And, and so anyway, I start training through this, and experts will tell you, so the, the Spartan Beast is like a 13.1 miles of insanity, okay? It's a half marathon, literally, with all these other things thrown in there. And so they say that you never want to run over 10 miles. You don't want to run all the way up to the 13.1 till the race. Why? Because the last three miles is called no man's land, right? That's the dead zone. That's where you hit a wall. Everybody that's in a race hits a wall somewhere, right? Some of you hit sooner than others. Trust me, I didn't make it to the 10-mile mark before I started to hit that wall where I'm like, dude, I don't think I can do this. And then you get to this, uh, this, this, this waterway, and you got, you got to swim like three, 400 meters across it. It was ridiculous. But through the whole thing, right, I had to prepare. And so I was preparing every week to run the race. Okay, if I hadn't prepared, it would have been pointless. We know it's going to be hard. We know the Christian life is going to be hard. The Bible says it is. What are we doing to prepare? See, Jesus has told us what to look for. He's told us what's coming. So we prepare by trusting that he's creating opportunities for us today to prepare ourselves. And not only that, to bear witness to what is coming. So, so the question is, what do you see in the church today? What do you really see when you look at his church? Sometimes the, the thing that seems to look like disarray is really God working his power. It's working his beautiful design for his church. See, God is shaking us to see what we really want. So we had a, a vision team meeting at the, after church last Sunday, and I want to share a couple of things uh, that we came away from there, and I'm thankful for our leadership here. Now, I want you to know you've got some really faithful, godly men and women who love Clean Texas. They love Harker Heights. They love Fort Hood. They love this area, and they want to see people come to know Christ. And so we went through the meeting. There are basically three things. We started listening to the list of things. Um, if you've ever done one of these, uh, definitely if you're in business or military or whatever, you've done these talks with the whiteboard. We put a line down the middle. Okay, all the things we feel like we've done good this year, what do we need to improve on? And I'm going to give you three of them because I think they're, they're really timely for us. One of them, we, we love our journey kids. Okay, I want you to know that. And we always have. We have faithful workers. But we want to work this year to do even better. We want to look at how can we engage more workers, more kids, and, and how do we create a vibrant ministry that will engage the heart, mind, and soul of a child. And so that's our desire here at The Journey. And so we're looking um, at some different creative ways to do that. 
Um, and so in February, uh, we're going to start opening up our, our older journey kids again. So we're excited about that. So I want you to be praying about that. Also, you may pray that maybe that's where God wants to use you to further the kingdom of God. I can't think of a better place to be. The other one is, how do we continue to encourage? And, and trust me, we always say, um, God doesn't need your money because he owns it all. Look what he says here. He says, the silver's mine, the gold's mine. Every nation is going to bring that and lay it at my feet. It's all mine anyway. And in fact, people always ask, used to ask me when they come into the journey, they would, they would say, hey, are you one of those churches all about the money? I said, no, we're all about Jesus, man. He owns it all. Okay, so I don't have to worry about that. But one of the things we want to continue to encourage people to do is, is in how do we steward our finances faithfully to the kingdom of God? Do we understand what it looks like to live for the kingdom of God? And then the third thing is in our outreach and missions, which is very challenging with the COVID culture and everything that's going on today. And so we've had to really think that. And so we want to look at how do we create environments, atmospheres, places where outsiders can become insiders. Outsiders can hear about the kingdom of God. And how can we do this in a meaningful way? And so this is just some of the things you can be praying about for us. But when we look at Haggai, we look at this, he says, I am with you. I am faithful. You're going to do what I've called you to do. Number three, and this is the last one, worship that can stand the test of time will be fueled by God's glory. Look at the end of this. It always comes back to God's glory. He says, and I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill the house, get this, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory, second time he says it, of this house will be greater than the former. So the Hebrew word for glory literally means heaviness or weight. Have you ever been in a situation or a place or experience with God where you just felt the weight of God's glory on you? Just that, just that, wow, man, God, thank you for being here. Thank you for being with me. See, a biblical term is also used in reference to the unapproachable, mighty manifestation uh, of the immediate presence of God. So the biblical concept of glory carries with not only immediate presence, but also future, right? So, so hummingbirds, um, I'm, I'm I must be getting old because several years back we went uh, we went on this uh, whole spring break thing and drug our kids. Now sometimes you have to make your kids go do things. So I'm like, we're all gonna go camping for a week. We're gonna hit every cave, natural bridge cave in Texas. And and we went to this one place way out west because I love to camp. My son's an Eagle Scout. We love to do those things. And so we go out there and they have all of these bird watching places. Right? That's what old people do. I hear. So anyway, so we go to these bird watching places. Have incredible birds. In fact, we woke up in the morning, and it's also one of the one of the largest roosts for um, for turkeys, right? Hundreds of turkeys out in the field, and those were amazing. I loved all that. But you know, the bird that still fascinates me, the hummingbird. Man, I love the hummingbirds. You ever watch hummingbirds? So, in a book, Birdology, um, a, a naturalist Montgomery describes the beauty of the hummingbirds. She says hummingbirds are the lightest birds in the sky. Of the roughly 240 species, the largest uh, and Andean giant is only eight inches long. The smallest is as small as a bee. Hummingbirds of Cuba. And, and it's just over two inches and it weighs a single gram. So the delicacy of the trade-off that hummingbirds have made for their unrivaled power in flight. Alone, among birds, they can hover, fly backwards, fly upside down, 
For such small birds, their speed is astonishing. In the courtship display of the impressive female and male, Allen's hummingbirds insisted that they can dive, uh, get this, dive out of the sky at 61 miles per hour. I mean, that, that's getting it, right? Diving at 385 body lengths per second, this hummingbird beats the Pelegrin's Falcon's dive, which is impressive to say, and, and the atmosphere at 207 body lengths per second. Hummingbird's wings beat at a rate that makes them blur. If you've ever seen them, right, they're, they're blurring in the air, and, and human eyes can't even, I mean, 60 times per second, they're just going over and over and over and over again. In most birds, 15 to 25% of the body is given over to the flying muscles. In a hummingbird's body, Flight muscles accounts for 35%. I mean, that's, that's unreal. Montgomery doesn't discuss her stance towards faith in God, but she does say this. She says, often I sit back and wonder at how this expresses the awe and wonder of the presence of God's beauty. See, the glory of God is that thing that we can't describe. If you tried to describe it, you could fill the world with books and you would never be able to write enough about the glory of God. But he says that when the former temple and the tabernacle had been completed, he said that it would be filled with the glory of God. So if you go back to Old Testament, you follow every time they built the the tabernacle and set it up in the desert, they all had to stand outside. Why? Because the glory of God filled that temple. That couldn't be there. I mean, you look at Moses. He couldn't even look on God's presence. He is so holy. And when he came down off the mountain, they had to put a shroud over his face because he glowed. I mean, that is the glory of God. So what does it mean that the treasure of all the nations will come in? He says, and I will fill the house with my glory. So the treasure that is, that is coveted by nations, right, is going to be laid at his feet. Later, a substantial amount of, of these precious articles were. I mean, you look at the return of the Lord's temple. The, the king of Cyrus of Persia sent inventory back to the temple. See, the totality of the world's treasure belongs to God, right? It's not ours. It's not the world's. See, this emphasis is the breadth of God's plan for the world coming to pass. It suggests that the world leaders will one day turn to God. And in fact, we read in Philippians chapter 2, it says, One day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. I mean, it is going to happen. And see, we forget that. Why? Because we live in the kingdom here now, and we forget the kingdom that's coming. See, twice we see that God's house will be filled with his glory. So there's a future glory of God's house. Haggai says in 2.9, says, The latter glory of this house will be greater than, than the former, says the Lord. So that means the glory promised, the greater glory that will be realized is Jesus Christ. So when he came, he was the greater Adam. He was the greater glory of God. And then in John 1, 14, it says, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen grace and truth and the glory of God through him. So Christ gives glory to his church. And in Ephesians 2, 21, it says, in whom the whole structure is being joined together. That's you, the church, okay? That's you, right? He's joining us together. The holy temple of the Lord. And then he ends with, look at the very end. He says, and I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. How many, how many of you want to experience peace in this world? I do. I don't want to be the Debbie Downer this morning, right? The Bible doesn't promise 
complete peace in this life at all. In fact, in, in James 1.4, he says that the only true picture of peace is Jesus Christ. See, the kingdom of God is both present reality all around us, but it's also a vision of what God is going to do in the future. So this church right here, okay, think about the best you can think about the church today. It's just, just a remnant. It's just a picture of what's coming. It's a picture of the greater glory of God. So Jesus' message in the gospel is a way of illustrating what this means. The latter glory of God will be different from the present. It's a way of teaching what life in the kingdom of God looks like, what it means to live as a servant of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Even Jesus' miracles are pictures of the glory of God, of his healing and the power. Did you know, get this, I love this picture in scripture. People just touched the hem of his robe and they were healed. Can you imagine what the kingdom of God is going to be? Today we want to ask the question, what is the kingdom of God? Those, those who have been Christians probably a while, maybe you have an idea of the kingdom of God. The more you think about it, the more you wonder at it. Many people say, is this all there is? Is this all there is? Is there more? See, the kingdom of God is a little harder to understand today simply because we don't live in a time where kingdoms rule and reign right? So even as bad, and you can complain about the government all you want, even as bad as you think it is, okay, there were worse generations. There were worse places where people were ruled and reigned under a king, okay? So when we talk about King Jesus, so the king for the people of Israel was the highest authority. He was responsible for everybody in the kingdom. In fact, Revelation says that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, rulers of all kingdoms. So God's kingdom is expansive. It includes all of creation. God rules over the entire cosmos, right? The entire thing. If you ever seen Aladdin's genie, right? Has ultimate power over the cosmos, right? Itty bitty living space, okay? I mean, that's God. I mean, I, that's, a, that's a bad illustration. Thank you. You can tell me later because I know it is. That, isn't even, that fails in comparison with what God does. Here's the problem. We get so used to living in this world in our skin that we fail to see what God is doing right now. We get so comfortable with, with our life here. See, after a period of time, we're going to be returned to the dust of the earth. Everybody here. Okay, unless he comes back first, you'll be returned to the dust of the earth. All the treasures of the earth are going to dissipate. Every house you've lived in, however nice it is, however beautiful it is, guess what? It's going to become a Walmart someday, I guess. I don't know. But it'll be, it'll be bulldozed, right? It will not exist hundreds of years from now. See, the knowledge of God's kingdom is all around us. So I want you to think about this in closing this morning. The kingdom of God is a vision for your life. This is a vision for your life. This is how we're supposed to live. This is how, this is how I'm supposed to live. See, the kingdom of God is a vision for your life. It's, it's what you are. It's what you were supposed to do. It's what you were created to do. So, so I want to give you, write this down, or maybe you can send yourself a text or a message. I want you to ask yourself one question this week when you wake up tomorrow morning. God, how can you use me today? How can you use me? How can you use me in your kingdom? What can I do in mission for you today, as I seek to live as the citizen of your kingdom. Finally, the kingdom of God is the climax of human history. And Haggai says this, in the place that will bring ultimate peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Sometimes when Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of God, he is speaking also of a present reality, right? So, so the book of Revelation tells us that on that day, there will be no more sorrow, no more grief, no more death, no more pain, no mourning. So just the very thought of, of that this morning 
as Christians, should make you some of the most hopeful people in the world. You should wake up tomorrow and say, man, God has given me life. What a joy. I mean, what a blessing to be given this life to live, to be able to breathe air. I want to close this morning the way Jesus ended many of his messages. He preached the kingdom of God more than anybody else all the time. And what did he say? The kingdom of God is near. And what did Paul say? The kingdom of God is here. <laughs> okay, so Jesus was the kingdom of God. I'm near you. And then he says the kingdom of God is right here, right now. And this is what he would always do. He said there were two responses we can make to the kingdom of God. The first response is to repent. What does repentance mean? Repentance means literally the word repentance in Greek means changing your mind. It means a renewing of your mind. It means you were thinking one way, and now I see things completely differently. See, when God opens your eyes, you begin to see people as they really are. You see the world as it is. You don't see things the same. That's true repentance. Yes, repentance is turning from your sins. Yes, that's a, that's a big part of it. But why do you turn from your sins? Why do you turn towards God? Because you start thinking differently. I see things differently. And then the second thing he would always do is talk about the good news. He said good news for the generation then, and it's good news for the generation today, is that God rules and reigns everything. And he loves you. And he wants to have a relationship with you because he's a relational God. See, the hope for this world, the hope for your family, the hope for this nation, the hope for anything in your life is not in this building made of steel. Even though we come here and we gather together and we worship and we, we, we feel God's presence when, when we're faithful to him, okay? But the reality is, the hope for the world is Jesus. It'll never change, never has changed. And it's going to be the future hope for the world. So what do you see when you look at the church? Do you see it in disarray, or do you see God's beautiful design in motion? My prayer is that you see God's beautiful design. And this week, tomorrow morning, you wake up and say, God, what can I do to serve you? What can I do to serve the church today? Let me pray for us. God, I thank you, Father, for Haggai's words of encouragement. God, that you have placed us here. Father, is as in all throughout history, and, and I think of Esther back in the Old Testament, for such a time as this, it's not by accident that, that we live in clean Texas. It's not by accident we live in Harker Heights or Fort Hood or wherever we're from this morning, God. You have placed us there for a greater purpose than we could ever hope or imagine. And so, Father, I pray that we would just, we would just ask you every day, God, how can I serve you better? How can I love you more? How can I be more faithful? Because, Father, we know you have always been faithful to us. You've never left us destitute and alone. You've always given us the greater vision of the kingdom of God. And the only reason we miss it, Father, many times is just our arrogant pride. Because we're selfish. We look so many other things to satisfy in the place that you have always been all along, right in front of us. So I pray for those here this morning, Father, that we will we'll repent. We'll have a changing of mind, a changing of heart. We'll turn to you. We'll confess you as Savior and Lord, and we'll believe the good news is true for today, just like it was yesterday, just like it was over 2,000 years ago when Jesus was on this earth. We love you, Father. We praise you. We pray all these things in your amazing name. Amen.